Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, this is Dr. Vesna Petronik-Rosich for Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Joel Gelfand, Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology, Vice Chair of Clinical Research, Medical Director of the Dermatology Clinical Studies Unit and Director of the Psoriasis and Phototherapy Treatment Center at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Gelfand. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Vesna. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The topic of our discussion is your article published in the June issue of the JAD entitled Risk of Liver Disease in Patients with Psoriasis, Psoriatic Arthritis and Rheumatoid Arthritis Receiving Methotrexate, a Population-Based Study. We have suspected for some time that patients with psoriatic disease may be more susceptible to methotrexate hepatotoxicity than those with rheumatoid arthritis. Can you please share the results of your research with us? Yeah, so this has been a sort of theory or hypothesis in our field for many years now, but was never really tested empirically in any meaningful way. Much of the initial thinking on this came from clinical intuition. Dermatologists felt like their patients got into more trouble on methotrexate than patients who had rheumatoid arthritis, for example. Uh, and that was the genesis for uh, guidelines of care that we've had for decades now that have been a little more aggressive in terms of conservative management of methotrexate in people with psoriasis including the use of liver biopsies to monitor safety over time. And really, the issue is that we never had the opportunity to answer this question in any meaningful way because we didn't have you know, large cohorts of patients to follow. And through a collaboration with colleagues of ours in Denmark, we had a really unique opportunity where in Denmark, essentially, you have uh, access to medical information for the entire country from cradle to grave. And so you're able to follow patients for many, many years and see what happens to them over time as their lives unfold. And so it's a unique data set that allows us to understand in patients who go on methotrexate, you know, what happens to them over time in terms of health outcomes. We don't have this type of data available in the United States. And in the U.S., people go in and out of administrative claim systems, uh, health insurance-based systems all the time. And so you just don't have the kind of detailed information you would need a long-term follow-up to answer this question. And so basically what we did is we looked at patients who had either rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, or psoriatic arthritis for their primary indication for getting methotrexate. And then followed them to see what was the likelihood of them developing moderate to severe liver disease, cirrhosis, or being hospitalized for cirrhosis. And clearly, there was a pattern where people who had psoriasis as a primary indication had by far the highest risk of having serious liver complications when getting methotrexate. For cirrhosis, they were three times more likely or more than three times more likely to develop cirrhosis and more than two, two times more likely to get hospitalized for cirrhosis when receiving methotrexate compared to people with rheumatoid arthritis. And then the psoriatic arthritis patients were sort of intermediary. They also tend to have higher risks of bad liver outcomes when receiving methotrexate, but not as high as people primarily skin disease for the indication of, of methotrexate. And in this study, we're able to control for a lot of different variables, underlying health issues the patients may have, smoking, alcohol abuse, things of that nature. We don't have direct data on things like obesity, for example, which we know could be a risk factor having liver problems. 
problems, but we are able to adjust for things like diabetes and hyperlipidemia. And by using some additional epidemiological methods, we could sort of convince ourselves that these associations are strong enough that it's likely driven by the disease and not some third factor we couldn't measure very well, like how much alcohol they drink or, or how overweight they may be, uh, because these are pretty powerful associations we picked up in the study. That is very interesting. And you actually covered a couple of the questions already in the introduction. Do you have any speculation on the reasons why there are relative differences in liver disease risk among methotrexate-treated patients with these different diseases? Um, and is there such a thing as a psoriatic liver and the hepatodermal axis? Would you be able to explain this a little bit for our listeners, please? Yeah. So the, to some extent, this is still a, a hypothesis that those of us in the scientific field have been working on. The concept of having a psoriatic liver comes from the idea that you can find fatty liver disease in people with psoriasis at much higher rates than people without psoriasis and without, uh, or even with other rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Our group has also published on these issues as well, you know, independent of the treatments we give patients and independent of body mass index and other risk factors for liver disease, we've shown quite clearly that people who have psoriasis are more likely to have fatty liver disease and other liver problems like cirrhosis compared to people without psoriasis or compared to, say, rheumatoid arthritis. We've also shown that the biosurface area of skin disease correlates with this. So the more biosurface area a patient has, the more likely they are to have diseases like fatty liver disease or cirrhosis or things of that nature, independent of other risk factors. You know, why this is, we don't really know, but we know there's clearly something unique to psoriatic disease that places our patients at higher risk for other metabolic problems. So for example, we've also shown that people with psoriasis are more likely to develop diabetes than people with rheumatoid arthritis, again, independent of their body mass index, things of that nature. And so, you know, the true pathophysiology linking this is not entirely clear. Uh, we know that there's some sh shared genetics uh, between say insulin resistance and psoriasis. The CDCAT1 gene makes people more prone to type two diabetes and that gene can make you more prone to psoriasis as well. There's other data showing that genes that make people more prone to obesity also make them more prone to developing psoriasis as well. So there's something you know unique between how we process insulin and glucose, how the body weighs down adipose, and the likelihood of having psoriasis or having severe disease. And, and the liver you know, clearly plays a role in this as well, because when people are heavier, that is a stress to the liver and, and causes more liver problems. In fact, now fatty liver disease is increasingly becoming you know, the most common reason why in the United States people need a liver transplant. Now that we have, you know, good treatments for uh, hepatitis C, uh, that's no longer a leading cause and fatty liver disease has become a major problem with patients. That is very interesting. And I found it very informative that obesity, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia are not thought to be independently confounding factors. I know that there's still research to be done about that, but I found that data to be really intriguing for what will come out of your lab and others over the years to come. Mm -hmm. Another interesting point over the years, I have found that my rheumatology colleagues have much looser standards for monitoring patients on methotrexate than I ever did. Mm -hmm. And I actually recall a, a phone call I had with a rheumatologist maybe 10 years ago about a patient. And, and I was asking why the patient was seeing them on annually and came to see me less than annually, but labs were only done annually. And so mm. we had a conversation that he was very surprised that I thought they needed to be done more frequently. 
than that. And your study suggests we should tailor monitoring to the underlying disease when using methotrexate. Can you share with us how you monitor your patients differently? Now, this is a very common experience that you point out. And I think a lot of this relates to our clinical experience in dermatology. You know, I remember when I was a medical student at Harvard, I was doing a sub-internship in medicine at MGH. And I remember distinctly a, a lady uh, admitted for liver failure, long history of methotrexate use, and she was essentially erythrodermic from psoriasis. Now, this, this is a long time ago, obviously, but you know that when you see this in your clinical practice, a patient on methotrexate who develops end-stage liver disease, it's just hard to forget that experience as a clinician. And in my clinical practice now, practicing dermatology for 20 years, you know, I have had several patients end up having severe liver disease, not necessarily related to methotrexate per se, but related to other factors, either psoriasis, uh, alcohol use, or other factors we're not entirely clear about. So, you know, if, if, if we pay close attention, we'll, we'll see this phenomenon in our patients. I was involved in the recent AAD MPF guidelines, helped write our, our new guidelines for monitoring liver toxicity of, of methotrexate. And the good news is that the new guidelines really offers new non-invasive ways to screen our patients for liver disease. And so the use of liver biopsy is really going away when it comes down to it. Most people we can monitor uh, non-invasively now, either through laboratory tests that are either sort of commercially available from say like a Quest or a LabCorp. They have these things called like a FibroSure test, or you could actually calculate it yourself via an algorithm that's provided in the AAD guidelines. If say a patient didn't have insurance and, and you wanted to do this less expensively, and then there's these specialized ultrasounds now that are called transient elastography. There we go, transient elastography. These are also known as sort of a fibro scan. And they can be done to look for signs of fibrosis in the liver before the patients will have clinical signs of liver disease. And, and that scan, how you could get it done is based on local availability. So in my institution at Penn, it has to be done by the liver doctor, the hepatologist does it. Other institutions, you can just order it and it's done by radiology. So, so as a practicing clinician, you got to figure out in your community, how do you get such a test done? And the AAD guidelines sort of break it up and say, well, think about, do they have risk factors for liver problems? problems or not. If they don't have risk factors for liver problems, we usually just proceed with methotrexate as usual. And, you know, around baseline or early on the course of treatment, as long as they're doing well on methotrexate and you plan to continue methotrexate long-term, uh, then you would get, you know, uh, like a FibroSure blood test, you know, one of these uh, lab things from LabCorp, or you'd calculate a Fib4. And if that has signs of fatty liver disease or fibrosis on the test, then you would move on to do the uh, ultrasound imaging to see if there's imaging evidence of fibrosis. If they have risk factors for liver disease, and these risk factors are very common, just being obese is a risk factor for liver disease. So it means at least half of our patients with psoriasis are going to end up being in the higher risk category of developing liver problems. Uh, those people you would, in addition to when you start a methotrexate, if they're doing well and you plan to keep them on it, you would then want to get you know one of these non-invasive blood tests to see if they have signs of fatty liver disease or signs of fibrosis. And you would also probably want to proceed to an ultrasound imaging in the first several months of going on methotrexate. And largely that's because we want to understand uh, what the status of the patient's liver is. You know, it's, it's possible the patient may have underlying fibrosis or advanced fatty liver disease unrelated to methotrexate, and you would want to pick that up early on in the course of treatment to decide if you want to persist on treatment or not. So that way you have an understanding of what's driving the findings that you're seeing. The other things that my colleagues should know about is that the ultrasound test is operator dependent. So it's important.
important to know the, the physician who's doing it or radiologist is doing it. And it also doesn't work great in people who are obese, especially those who have a BMI greater than 40. So your patients who are sort of you know, morbidly obese, uh, and that's not uncommon in our patient population with psoriasis, those individuals, we often have to use a specialized MRI to look at fibrosis in the liver because the abdominal wall is just too large for the ultrasound to work reliably. And the good news about all these tests is that they're fairly sensitive, meaning that you are unlikely to miss a patient who has clinically important liver disease, and therefore the test is negative. You can feel confident that, you know, that they're going to be okay in terms of their liver with continued monitoring. And then you know, the specificity varies. So the blood tests aren't terribly specific. If you get an abnormal result, you don't necessarily want to go ahead and say, all right, I'm done with methotrexate. It's, you know, they could be as much as a 50% false positive rate there you know, for the blood tests. You'd want to go on to the imaging, which is much more sensitive and specific. So if they see fibrosis there on imaging, be it ultrasound or MRI, you know there's evidence of liver damage. And then it would be shared decision-making with the patient and the hepatologist about whether or not it makes sense to continue methotrexate or if other options should be pursued at that point in time. Very good. And just so our colleagues know, the FIT4 link is embedded into the AAD guidelines. I actually played with it a little bit and my patient was fine. My imaginary Mm -hmm. patient Mm -hmm. was able to continue taking methotrexate. What about the other baseline and and follow-up blood work that we do, like a CBC with a differential? I'm used to ordering it every three, four months. Patients really don't like that. Should we continue to do that? I think that in the beginning, you're mainly worried about an idiosyncratic reaction where they're going to bottom out their blood count, you know, bottom out their platelets, something like that. And so basically, we sort of recommend the CBC and, and, and labs early on when you're starting therapy. But if their treatment is stable, we recommend you know, blood test monitoring every three to six months, basically. And so, you know, a young, healthy person who has good kidney functions, not on other medications, has no other medical problems, and they're on a fairly low dose of methotrexate, maybe they're on, you know, on a 12 and a half milligrams a week, you know, you could probably monitor them once, a, you know, twice a year if, if they have no signs of liver function test abnormalities and they're doing otherwise well and stable. But an older individual who may have more borderline kidney function as they get older, maybe they're episodically on NSAIDs that could, you know, uh, raise methotrexate levels, you know, that, that kind of patient, maybe you want to monitor them more closely every, every three months or so. Very good. And I know this isn't part of our topic, but I'm going to take advantage of your expertise and ask, what about other patients who do not have psoriasis and we're using methotrexate, like dermatomyositis Mm. or such? Do you use the same monitoring guidelines? Yeah, this is a great question. And and they are just that, the guidelines uh, to help our colleagues uh, deliver the best care we can. I think since these tests are non-invasive and easily available, that it would make sense if, if we're, you're intending to treat someone long-term with methotrexate. Because if someone's doing well, uh, methotrexate, you know, they can be on it for many years, possibly. And I think it's helpful information for both the clinician and the patient to be aware of what's going on in the liver. So I, I would encourage people to think about it. The other thing I want to bring up about the guidelines, which I mentioned earlier, is the other big change we came up with was that we don't really recommend a test dose uh, of methotrexate for most patients. You know, the older guidelines were pretty conservative, said start with a test dose, maybe two and a half to five milligrams, make sure you don't have an unusual reaction. 
And that's not been really borne out by the data over time. And in fact, there's been a number of clinical trials done with methotrexate now, and none of them have used a test dose. They've usually gone straight to 15 milligrams weekly dosing in patients, something therapeutic for a patient. And so in my own clinical practice, I, I also don't do a test dose unless I'm worried about the patient, you know, a, a frail older individual who has sort of borderline kidney function, those are the individuals who will get into trouble, especially there's potential drug interactions on board. But a person who otherwise has completely normal kidney function and is not on other medications like NSAIDs or certain antibiotics that interfere with metabolism of methotrexate, the odds of them having a mild suppression is extraordinarily low. And so I just go to a regular dose of the drug. Very good. And has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the use of methotrexate at all? You know, this is a really interesting question. Uh, you know, a paper just came out of the French literature where they surveyed French dermatologists, and, and many of them did say that they've, you know, discontinued prescribing methotrexate during the pandemic. I think the good news is that the bulk of the data seems to suggest that medications like methotrexate probably don't meaningfully impact the likelihood of either getting COVID or having a poor outcome from COVID illness. It's really comorbidities, things like uh, underlying lung disease, obesity, age, that really drive poor outcomes uh, in COVID-19. And the therapies we use as dermatologists don't seem to play a major role beyond potentially certain things like rituximab, for example. That one seems to be a, a bigger player for patients because it really knocks out the ability to develop antibodies. When it comes to the, to the COVID-19 vaccines, I co-chaired the National Psoriasis Foundation's task force for COVID-19. And our current recommendation is that for most patients with psoriasis, they should get the first COVID-19 vaccine available for them. And they should just continue on their psoriasis disease therapies during the vaccine period, because we don't really think that the treatments we use will meaningfully alter the vaccine response. Now, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a one-dose vaccine, we did suggest to our colleagues that if someone's 60 or older and they're doing well with their disease, you may consider holding methotrexate for two weeks after getting that vaccine with the theoretical advantage of maybe having a better antibody or titer response. So why did we choose that? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people 60 or older did not have as good responses to the vaccine as younger individuals. Okay, It wasn't statistically significant, but the trends in data were, were there. And so those are people we're all more worried about. And then there was one clinical trial done a couple of years ago from Korea, from South Korea, showing that people with rheumatoid arthritis, if they held their methotrexate dose for two weeks after getting a flu shot, then they were slightly more likely to have a good antibody titer response to the flu vaccine. What does that mean? Honestly, we really don't know. Okay, it's a marginal benefit on a surrogate marker of unclear significance, right? So I'm more concerned about people being delayed getting a COVID-19 because they're confused and trying to figure out what to do with their methotrexate. The biggest risk is actually not getting the vaccine than this theoretical concern. And as the data has emerged, it seems that outside of transplant populations and outside of people who are getting things like rituximab, it seems like people getting the therapies we use for psoriatic disease or methotrexate seem to develop reasonable antibody responses to the mRNA vaccines. We need more data to emerge from the other adenovirus vectored vaccines to understand that phenomenon there. But th these are highly immunogenic. And my sense is that the vaccines will be effective even when people are on methotrexate. 
That is great to know. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a lot of opportunities for further research. Can you help us identify the gaps, uh, both in research and monitoring standards that we should pursue studies for? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly there must be some type of genetic determinants of what's predicting people developing liver complications of methotrexate over time, as well as predicting who's going to do well on methotrexate. And some of that data, at least for who will respond well to methotrexate, is starting to merge a little bit, but it's really in its infancy. And so this is a really important area of, of investigation to say, well, maybe this is a person we know is going to get a posi 90 on methotrexate and it's inexpensive. And we could tell from their genetic profile that they're not going to get the liver problems. Well, it would be a really nice option, wouldn't it be, for a patient once a week, very inexpensive, uh, and could be very safe for individuals as long as there's not drug interactions at play or the female's uh, childbearing potential is planning getting pregnant. Um, pharmacogenomics is going to be very important for the future of methotrexate use in the field of psoriasis. If you could predict who's going to do well and who's not going to have side effects, that would make this a really appealing therapy available now. Uh, under current use, however, though, you know, it's not the most effective therapy. It requires more monitoring. It has some nuisance side effects to patients. And so it usually is not a therapy I'm jumping for. I'm usually using it in people who either have insurance access issues or individuals who have really tough psoriasis and they need, you know, methotrexate in combination of a biologic to manage their disease possibly in hope of extending how long they are able to maintain response to their biologic, or they also have significant comorbid psoriatic arthritis that's not responding well enough to a biologic alone. So a drug still clearly has a role in the management of, of psoriasis uh, today, but hopefully for more patients, they could do well on other therapies. Very good. Is there anything that you would like to share with our colleagues that I did not have the opportunity to ask you about? I just think it's such an exciting time in medicine and science in general. When I was a graduate student, I was aware of the psoriatic liver concept. And that was the first study I wanted to do. This was in the early 2000s. And my advisor said, you know, it's not really worth looking at, hard to answer in the data you have available to you. And also, you know, cancer and psoriasis is more important. You should study that. And I'm glad that he recommended that because I did work in psoriasis lymphoma and that, that work really sort of moved my career forward. But, you know, now we have more medical informatics developing, abilities to collaborate across the world. And 20 years after I was introduced this hypothesis, I was finally able to test it and hopefully generate data that's helpful for my colleagues in helping our patients achieve better and safer outcomes. Excellent. Well, you've done fabulous research. We're very, very grateful for your contribution to better medical care. Thank you very much for being with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.